What's the haps, kids? This is WJ from Ring General Radio, and you are listening to the 4D Podcast Network. sharing the conversation I had with Tamina Watson. Tamina is a Seattle-based immigration attorney, podcaster, and activist. She's also the founder of the Washington Immigration Defense Network, which funds and supports legal services for detained low-income immigrants. Tamina also has a few books out there, her first one being The Startup Visa, and her most recent one, Legal Heroes in the Trump Era where she shares conversations with other immigration lawyers about all of the obstacles and sacrifices and legal cases that were going on during the Trump presidency. But we didn't just focus on that area. We talked about all of U.S. immigration, the policies, the laws, everything that was passed under Obama, the Trump administration. And we even covered Biden's new plans for the future, including DACA. Honestly, I was a little nervous about this conversation because I'm, you know, since Trump left office, I haven't really been paying that much attention to politics. Now, I'm not saying everything is perfect these days, but there are definitely less fires to put out. Sadly, I found out not much has changed throughout the years. Sure, there have been some spikes here and there, but overall, the U.S. immigration system hasn't changed all that much. And man, does it ever fucking need to. If America was a car, more than the check engine light would be flashing. We need oil, wiper fluid, gas. Almost all of our dash lights would be on, and we got a couple flat tires. But before we dive into this conversation, I wanted to share something that Tamina mentioned right off the bat, and I thought it was important to remember, and I think a lot of us forget about this. Most of the people that are immigrating here are doing it because they feel like they have to. Not want to, have to. They need some sort of safe haven or a place to start over with their children. In America, well, we're the land of opportunity. That's all we brag about, right? It's on all our brochures. It's like if America was an amusement park and for decades we boasted about having the tallest, fastest rides in the world. And then when people showed up to the park, we'd turn them away and then we'd be confused. Like, what do you mean you want to ride these rides? They're for us. We just want to tell you how awesome they were. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. Before we start today, I want to try a little exercise with you. I want you to close your eyes. Now picture starting all over. And I don't mean like you bought a cabin up in Colorado. I mean starting over in a completely different country. One where the language you speak isn't the one that they do. Now picture leaving your family behind. So say goodbye to your mom, your dad, your cousins, your brothers, your sisters, you know, all your work friends. Are you scared yet? How are you even going to do little everyday things that we take advantage of, like ordering food? You don't speak the language. You don't know anybody there. And you have very little money. Now imagine you have a couple of children with you. Terrifying, right? But guess what? 
if you don't start over, if you don't flee the country you're currently in, your children might get sick from the water or the food there, or you might be in danger of getting shot or bombed. And even if things aren't that drastic, you still have to worry about the education for you and your children and your children's children. I think we get lost in our privilege here in America. And it's not a perfect country by any means, but God damn it, there's a fuck ton of potential here. The sky's the limit if you work really, really hard. And that's not guaranteed everywhere else in the world. Immigrants built this wonderful country of ours. Someone much older than you and I was escaping the tyranny of England many years ago, and they fought side by side with someone with a different cultural background, religion, social status, in hopes that America one day would be that safe haven for others who were just like us, in need. How quickly we have forgotten our creed. Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. I think the number one thing that comes up in my Facebook feed when I, whenever I post about politics and, and, and this and that in the last few years is always, what about kids in cages? Why can't we get these kids out of these cages? <laughs> Do you have, why, why are these kids there? Is it Obama's fault? Is it Trump? Is it the, like, it goes back and forth. All I think the people know is that there are kids in cages, but nobody seems to know how they got there, what they're doing there, and how we get them the fuck out of there. <laughs> Is there can you shed some light on on kids in cages? Where do we begin? I, th I think, you know, the children are coming from countries where their lives are at risk. And children don't come here without their parents if if the issues were not so serious. And so when, uh, and I'm going to take them into sort of like the Obama era, Trump era, and what's happening under the Biden administration. In the Obama era, when the cages issue really came, uh, became an issue, that's when children were coming into the U.S., unaccompanied. So you will hear on the news, unaccompanied minors. Uh, children are being sent by their parents, you know, however they can get them here, here, so that they can at least be alive. And so under the Obama era, when these children were coming here, and there was a surge, if you like, they needed to be somewhere. And Yes, it was controversial. President Obama, as much uh, good as he had done on the immigration front, he was dubbed as the deporter in chief. And so there was a lot of controversy at the time. But those children uh, were, were under shelters and they were under, you know, there's, there's always going to be controversy no matter which way you try to say this. Um, but they came as unaccompanied children. And I think that's the biggest takeaway that and they were being, you know, looked after, so to speak. But and they did have a time limit, right? Under the Obama thing, wasn't like a 20 day maximum hold or something like that. Or... That's right. That's okay. right. They were going to be released under something called the Flores Agreement. Um, when the Trump administration came along, 
one of the things that they did almost immediately um, was to find ways to deter parents from doing that. Uh, parents from coming in with their children or just children. But at the time, the controversy under the Trump administration really happened because parents were being deliberately separated from their children. They were not children who came alone. They were deliberately separated. And that's where the inhumane treatment really began. Because and that's under the zero tolerance policy, right? Totally. And, you know, I'm going to take you to one step back from that, too. The, the, the week that Trump was inaugurated, there were two executive orders on that Wednesday. He was inaugurated on Saturday. On a Wednesday, there were two executive orders. One was about border security. And one was interior enforcement. And that border security one was the one that really propelled everything else that followed, including zero tolerance. Um, and yes, it was, you know, in American history, you have never heard of children being separated from their parents as young as four months. And, you know, as that was happening, in my mind, I was thinking, where are these children going? You know, what's happening with them? And they were taken to detention centers. And yes, they were using some of the places that President Obama had used. But what's important to understand that somebody was actually making money from this. You know, um, detention centers were charging more than what Four Seasons would charge per head. And so when you're separating the parent and the child, you now have these private detention centers who were supposedly nonprofits where the CEOs were probably making a lot of money with lots of zeros on them per head, per person. And so in my mind, there's, there's a lot to, uh, that we don't even know that was going on behind the scenes. Um, there is a book called uh, The Shock Doctrine, written by Professor Naomi Klein. And as this was starting to happen, I thought, gosh, what's happening here? Why is this happening? And who's profiting from it? Um, and we still don't have clear answers on how much was each person's, you know, um, uh, bed worth at the time, how many beds were actually being um used and who was getting paid. We still don't have answers. Intercept and some other investigatory uh, publications are looking at them. But I, I think the issue is not just that the children were here. The issue goes so much deeper and I don't know if we'll ever know about them. Um, and so fast forward the clock, you know, that's a, it's almost like I'm digressing to the question that you're asking, but you, the issues are so deep, I don't have the answer and I don't know if anybody else actually does have the answer, except to say, don't just look at the surface. It's not just about the surface. What we did learn from the Trump administration is we were diverted, our attention was diverted so many times in so many ways while they were doing bigger things. And I have no doubt that this was one of them. But now we fast forward to what's happening under the Biden administration. They are trying to go back to making sure the children uh, are, you know, treated better. And there are, you know, there's better food, if you like. Oh, by the way, going back a step, we were hearing stories of children being trafficked. Those children under the Trump administration were being trafficked. And so there are news articles about it. So what happened in the last four years? I mean... I don't know if I, I can even fathom it, uh, but we only know what happened at the surface and it's not enough to just say what happened to the kids because I would like somebody to go and really look at 
who were the owners of those uh, private detention centers, what was happening, and so forth. So fast forward the clock to now, Biden administration, they really are trying to look at it from a holistic perspective. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris is now in charge of looking at the um, uh, those countries to see what can we do to make those situations better so that people don't have to lose their life to even get to America. We hear about people coming to America and at the border, but it's no easy feat getting here. Many people die and we probably don't even know how many. Well, no. even even when it comes to leisurely travel or, you know, I, I work in comedy and so I'm 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 playing other countries all the time and well, not all the time, but I, you know, I get a chance here and there. And a lot of one of the countries I play, you know, a lot, a lot more than the others is Canada. And when I'm talking to Canadian comedians, which is, you know, Canada is not a, a war stricken country by any means, and nobody's really in dire straits there. But it's extremely hard for a, a Canadian comedian to come to America and even work on a television show. Um, they're talking about, you know, up to eight or nine months of, of paperwork and time trials and all of these things just to come and actually have to prove that they have work waiting on them and that nobody else could do that job but them when it comes to television or stage. And so you have a blockade even when it comes to the arts, which is, again, not said in any kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, tyranny. <laughs> um, but as something as leisurely as, as stand-up comedy, even coming here to tell jokes is under such uh, scrutiny that you again it takes months and sometimes years to come here and and even make a few bucks to tell jokes legally yeah yeah and you know i i do absolutely sympathize with the artists community because covid has really caused some immense damage to that industry not just in america but around the world around oh, the world yeah yeah, and tons of comedy clubs are shut down, theaters, you know, small black box theaters, stuff like that. And, you know, you're talking and that and that's the thing. You, you're not only talking about the artists in that situation, but you're also talking about the families who 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 make these clubs special. The waitresses, the bartenders, the managers, the bookers, all of that stuff that makes these these institutions run that people love to go to. They they love to talk about, you know, oh, I went to LA and I went to the comedy store. It was amazing. Well, great. There's 30 waitresses there and there's you know 10 bartenders and there's this and that like not only is it stopping your your favorite artist to to do their little jokes or whatever but you have to look at it on a scale of how it bleeds into the the ripple effect of the actual this is a a business and uh and, and you're talking about that even for you know that bleeds over obviously to actors and singer songwriters and production houses and stuff when we're talking about filming you're talking about hundreds of people on a crew to make a movie and i don't think a enough people when covid came around there were a lot of people posting in the arts that like hey this is going to do some real damage to us and people were like hey you'll be fine so what you don't get to tell your little jokes for a couple weeks and it's like no, 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 no. You understand. There's mom and pop shop comedy clubs all over the world, not only just in America, but there's little black box theaters all over the world that will not survive this. And a lot of them didn't. 
Yeah, it's an ecosystem. And then if you mm-hmm. throw in the challenge of, you know, visas, and, and just so your listeners know, when somebody's coming to the US uh, with a visa for the, the arts, um, whether it's performing music or to perform in a, in a movie, they're using a visa called a P visa or an O visa. They're not easy to get you know, and they do take time, they cost money to get. But the challenge that has also come um, uh, because of COVID, but has completely made uh, a devastating impact, even today, is what happens at the embassies, you know, when somebody is getting that P visa or an O visa, and it's been approved in the US, and let's say they they have an approval, they now have to go to the embassy to get a stamp in their passport. And just so your listeners can um, visualize it, it's a little sticky stamp in their passport, sort of a, a almost the same size as a passport. And only an embassy can stamp it, stick it into the passport. And to get that, you need to have an appointment at the embassy and then have an interview and then get on a plane and then come here. COVID basically shut down these embassies. And then the additional problem has been that various country bans have happened. And you know, if your listeners are interested, I write a biweekly column in a national law magazine called Above the Law. And one of the articles in it is called Visa Ban versus Travel Ban. And so, or country ban, you know, not only are we struggling with what visa ban are you under? You know, is it a H1B ban or is it something else or is it a country ban and the visa bans have gone away Trump had put them in place and then President Biden has taken them away but the country ban now exists still and now we have to say which country are you from Mm, what's the rule there our embassy is actually going to see you for example London um Uh, cancelled all of their appointments for anybody who had them scheduled uh, and they're not going to see anybody until 2022. I have clients in India and these are people, not artists, but any visa uh, and they cannot get appointments until, you know, late this year or early next year. And even then there's no guarantee. So the entire visa system has really go- is going through an unprecedented challenge. And just like you mentioned about mom and pop stores, uh, comedy stores, um, businesses in general are really hurting. You know, I work with small to medium sized businesses in, in Seattle, Washington and around the country, and they have business needs about executives that need to travel outside the country or people that need to come into the country. Uh, it is impacting businesses of all sorts. So it's it's an interesting time to be a human being to start with, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it's an interesting time to be an immigration lawyer. I thought I m- my challenges were over after the election was won. Uh, But, uh, you know, I don't know who I was fooling, but COVID really has brought some lasting challenges and they're all novel. You know, the last four years, each challenge was novel, but the novelty that we're seeing in the challenges anew um, are really testing us 
in ways that we never thought we would be. Yeah. And, um, you know, before we move forward, because I do want to talk about um, the Trump era and the difference between the country bands that you had mentioned, because almost immediately when Trump came in office, too, I mean, I remember I was I was flying in Chicago when they started doing all the Muslim band travels. I do want to talk about the difference between that and what's going on now at the borders down in Mexico and the wall and all that stuff, of course. But before we go there, I want to go back to the Obama era, um, because you get this comparison, of course, I think, I think we're kind of tied in this, uh, I don't know, this, this lock hold between Obama versus Trump and nobody really cares about Joe yet. (laughs) It's still too new to really, you know, uncle Joe's fine for now. Um, you know, a lot of people still, you know, I don't know if you saw Trump talking about it two days ago, but he's coming back in August, baby. (laughs) Oh goodness. Oh my God. (laughs) Anyways. So, uh, but a lot of people, especially talking about immigration, um, compare the Obama era to the Trump era. And a lot of blame gets put on uh, Obama. And you had mentioned it before. And, you know, I, here's the thing. I'm a big fan. Love Obama. Not perfect. <laughs> right. He, uh, we had more airstrikes under Obama than any other you know, president. We uh, the uh, deportation levels were skyrocketing. He deported more than any other president in, in history. Like all of these things that he was doing that Republicans seem to to cheer about. That's what they want. That's the they want to get rid of people. They want it to be, you know, quote unquote, Americans only living in America. You know, they're patriots. Um, and so you would think that Obama would be their fucking guy. He's 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 starting wars. He's droning people. He's deporting immigrants like this is your guy. And uh, unfortunately, they just didn't see it that way. Um, so you have you have a lot of these policies like DACA that happened under the Obama administration um, that were almost uh, dismantled under Trump. Can we talk about what DACA is and the pros and cons with it that came with the with the Obama administration. And then why was Trump? I mean, obviously, Trump just wanted to get rid of anything with uh, Obama's name on it. But he uh, DACA seemed to be one of his main targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, such a good question. And I'm going to answer that in a moment. But what I wanted to take a moment to share is my book called Legal Heroes in the Trump Era. Um, It's sort of a summary of the work that I had done, as well as 13 other lawyers in different disciplines, but a lot of them in immigration, uh, had done under the Trump era, uh, because a lot of the policies that we're about to talk about really devastated the legal community in that we can't do anything. This, how can this, how can this be legal? How can, what can I do to save and protect the rule of law? That's Uh, how I felt just reading newspapers as a regular citizen. (laughs) Every few days I was like, is this legal? How can I stop that? What is, how do I stop this? What do I do? (laughs) Totally. And, and, And for lawyers who became lawyers to protect the rule of law, you know, to be an officer of the court, to see this was actually rather rather devastating. I mean, uh, so I have a podcast called Tamina Talks Immigration. And all of these lawyers actually have uh, been interviewed on my podcast. And the book actually came because of the interviews, not the other way around. So it's, it's, it's a good thing to read 
to get, you know, insights from different perspectives. And I sort of give a summary of what I did. But going back to President Obama, he tried. Yes, you talked about the cons. Let me talk about the pros. Um, when it comes to immigration, he tried. He wanted to have immigration reform. In 2013, there was an immigration reform bill that passed in Senate uh, with, with a good majority. And in that, they covered path to citizenship and many other great things. It was a compromise. It wasn't like everybody was happy, but everybody was happy enough for it to pass. And we haven't had immigration reform for, you know, three decades um, or more even. I can't do math. But um, <laughs> what happened What happened with that, it died in the house, just like everything else does. And... Um, at that point, President Obama said, OK, I've got to have executive action on immigration. It's those executive actions in 2014 that gave us DACA. And think about the benefit of DACA that we have seen so far. These are people who are basically American, except for on paper. They, they, they are American in their hearts and their minds and everything they do on a daily basis. So DACA. Can, can you, came can you describe DACA for the listeners sure. that don't know yes. what it is? So it's DACA stands for Deferred Action uh, for Childhood Arrival, meaning that anybody who arrived as a baby or a little child um, before 2012, when it, um, 12, um, and who was at the, under the age of 30 at the time of this um, going through, they could get permission to work in the US and live in the US and permission to work means you get a bona fide work permit with a bona fide social security number. And therefore you can now work their work conditions part of it that was that you have to be here for a certain amount of time. Um, but you also uh, have to have got a GED or studying to get one. Um, and that has been a savior for that community. And piggybacking on that, there was a plan to have something called DAPA for the parents, Deferred Action for Parents. But that was challenged and it never went, went through. Um, but those executive actions also gave us work authorization for some spouses of work visa holders that we didn't have before. There were other benefits to those executive actions that people don't necessarily know about unless you're working in this area. Um, but DACA, of course, was the biggest one. So fast forward the clock to um, Trump, as you said, he wanted to wipe uh, away anything that President Obama had done. DACA was one of them. But it wasn't just what President Obama had done. The rhetoric from the Trump campaign, from the moment he was coming down those escalators, was all about just us. It was just nationalistic only. Right, um, America first, that kind of jargon of, you know, like, yeah, it's it's the uh, it's the nationalist idea of you don't fuck with Texas. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's it's, right. it's yeah. Yes, beating it's bravado. It's that blue collar uh, war cry. Yeah. And he was calling names for different, you know, communities, minority communities. And mass deportation was one of the things he had touted, as well as having a border wall that Mexico would pay for. But guess what? Who paid for it in the end? You know, and actually, who did get that money? I think, again, if anybody could follow the funds, it would be interesting to see what happened uh, to that. Because, you know, every time there was a budget challenge or something, you had to give money for the wall before you would do anything else. Um, and so DACA was taken away on paper through an executive action by Trump in September 2017. 
And then we had to go through litigation, which, you know, came to an end in, uh, was it 2020, uh, August 2020, I think, um, where the Supreme Court said, no, it's fine. But they didn't necessarily said it was fine. It said that Trump didn't take it away in the way that he should have. Uh, and so they gave him a roadmap in how to take it away. And so there was fear that uh, DACA would be taken away uh, because it's through, you know, um, regulation, essentially, um, to do the executive order. But essentially, there was a process in which it must be taken away. And so right now, under the Biden administration, we really need to make sure that Congress creates a pathway so that no president can just have a signature on a paper saying I'm giving it or taking it away. We need it to be permanently etched on the books. And so that's what our hope is with President Biden. However, we have an obstinate, um, you know, bipartisan well, situation going on here. And so when the Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill was uh, dropped in February, instantly, you know, there was discussions that, no, we're not going to do it this way. So there are two bills pending, one for dreamers. So the DACA folks are actually referred to as dreamers. Uh, and there is also a, a farm, farm workers modernization bill pending. And we'll see where they go. And so um, these are challenging times because while... Right this moment, there's not a lot of fear that they're going to be deported anymore. The clock is ticking, and that's what we need to focus on. Do you think it's easier now to get something like that uh, permeated with uh, now that we have the presidency, the House and the Senate is all Democratic? Do you think that something like the Dreamers Act or DACA or whatever you want to it, it is now, um, do you think that that will will be finalized? That's the hope. But, you know, there's a lot of politics involved and you need to have the numbers. And it looks like, you know, those who want to see this bill passed are basically politicking behind the scenes to get those votes. And I don't know where that stands. But as somebody who's not in politics, I don't know what needs to happen for all of that to go ahead. But as a layperson in that arena, but also a lawyer, what I do know is that we need to get our voices heard. And the way you do that is to make sure that you speak to your congressperson, your senator, um, make sure that you either write letters to the editor of your newspaper, your local newspaper. Um, you know, people don't realize the value of their voices. And if there's one thing that your listeners should really take away from the conversation between you and me is to use their voice, whatever your issue is, whether it's education, because, you know, COVID has really uh, taken us back uh, on education, or if it's healthcare, or if it's DACA, whatever the issue is, make that phone call to your representative, but also find ways to represent yourselves. Um, you know, some people are shy, but some people are not. So if you are somebody who's outgoing, get four friends, five friends together and find a way to advocate for the thing that you care about. And in this case, it's DACA that I'm asking you to talk about, but it doesn't have to be, it can be anything. And that's that's so interesting you brought that up because, you know, the, the second most popular thing that, that I get uh, uh you know the the fight back from is this idea of if 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 immigrants want to be here they need to do it the right way and this quote unquote the right way gets thrown around and when you when you push back and you ask them okay well what is the right way 
they they don't have an answer for that and that's that's on both sides nobody really there's no is there a clear definition on the right way because i know there's uh, there's been things uh, suggested, of course, DACA is one of them, but the, another way is like this merit-based immigration. And I'm not sure if that's even in, in has been passed or is a, poli- a working policy right now, but I know that it's been thrown around. Um, what is, quote unquote, the right way to come to America and be a citizen and, and not have to worry about living in that fear of, of, of getting deported for you and your family? I love that question. Thank you for asking it the right way. It gets thrown around every which way. And to be honest, there's also uh, infighting is not the right word, but even between immigrant communities, there are there's often sort of uh, controversy about it too. We came the right way and we're suffering. Right. And, and, and before I even get to the right way, um, let me just give you an overview of what happens in immigration. The immigration system in the United States was actually set in 1952. Um, and then there were some amendments in 1965 and then in 1990. Um, there are three headings, if you like, for immigration. There is the family-based immigration. There is uh, employment-based immigration. And there's everything else, which includes diversity and humanitarian refugees and asylum. that's the way it's easy to understand. Um, Within that, in family-based, you can only sponsor your parents, children, siblings. So one of the things that people might remember hearing in the last four years is chain migration. And people were given this misconception that you can apply for your granddad and your grandma and your aunt and your cousin. That is not true. You can only file for your immediate relatives. But then I describe it as a bullseye. You take a dartboard and the bullseye in the center, that's the dark, you know, black spot. That's the center. That's the closest relationship. So if you are a spouse or a parent or a minor child, you're there, which means you're relatively quick. And in immigration, nothing is quick. But, you know, maybe two years to get a green card. That's the quickest it can happen. You're in the bullseye. As the relationship gets further out, so child who's over 21, child who is married, sibling, you're on the outer uh, circles of that dartboard and the waiting time gets longer and longer. That long relationship or processing time rather will depend on which country you are from um, and of course, which category. And those can exceed 20 years sometimes. So that process in and of itself is not quick or easy. It's the quote unquote right way, but it's not, you know, a beneficial way. But that's what we're stuck with as a system on that front. When it comes to employment based, the bullseye that I mentioned is actually people who are extraordinary, people who are geniuses, the Nobel Prize winners, the Oscar winners, or if you're a manager of a company getting a green card um you're in the bullseye that's the quickest even the quickest can take a long time depending on which country you're from which country you come from really makes a big difference because every country has a seven percent quota of people that can get green cards in any given year and so if if you're from a larger country like india philippines you know uh, china the waiting time becomes significantly longer decades and decades um, and then if you have a master's degree, bachelor's degree, or no degree, you're on the outer skirts of that dartboard. 
And so that system is no way uh, perfect in, by any means. And that's not merit-based. And merit-based, I'm so glad you brought that word up <laughs> because I actually am in the middle of writing an article that will be published in my next column in Above the Law, and I hope people will read it. But what merit-based really wanted to do is say, hey, if you have a, you know, a PhD or a master's degree, we'll give you that many points. If you have um, you know, work experience, and you know blah blah you'll have that many points it's a points-based system that exists in Australia Canada and you know if you talk to lawyers from those countries they will tell you that they're not necessarily perfect but they work we don't have that and so I am actually in favor of a merit-based system but and merit-based system that was introduced in the Obama era, the one that was introduced in 2013 in the Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill. What Trump tried to do is use merit-based as a word to throw out there, but not really mean it. You know, it was a bit like the right way. You just throw it out there to sort of say, yeah, yeah, we want merit-based, but what does it really mean? We did right. not have a system presented to us that would be acceptable. And so um, when we talk about right way, what happened in 1996 is there was a law that was passed by President Clinton. And that said, if you came to the U.S. and you were illegally here without status for three years or um, sorry, six months to 12 months, and you leave the country, you now trigger a bar from coming back for three years. And if you are in the US without status for 12 months or more, if you leave the country, you cannot come back for 10 years. Now, oh my God. And that's the thing that people don't understand that these people who are now essentially stuck here, because even if they leave the country, they cannot come back for 10 years anymore. There's no pathway for them to. Um, fix that issue it's almost like they've broken their probation you know when you have a probation officer you break probation and then you're like you got to go on the lam because if they find you <laughs> you're going back to jail for a while oh my gosh that's that's such a great example to give and that's exactly what's happened so now you have these 11 million people who are undocumented they want to actually have status but there's no right way so you've hit it right on the nail there, that there is no right way. And we need to create that right way. But the creation means having immigration reform. And immigration reform is not just about DACA, not just about asylum. It's not just about the border wall. It's everything. Now, if you fix just the DACA problem, um, but without fixing the wait time that people have from these various countries, or you don't introduce merit-based, uh, you're now fixing the ankle bone without fixing the knee bone, and you're still lopsided, but you're lopsided in a different way. And so the system really needs an overhaul uh, reform so that we can have something that benefits America. What people don't understand is that the distraction that we get from um, the various aspects, aspects of immigration is not the whole picture. And what immigration needs to do for a country, particularly for America, is to actually help the economy. It is not being used as a tool for economic growth. You know, every head Let's just talk about refugees for a moment. Uh, for every penny that is spent on a refugee in processing, those refugees per head will actually contribute three 
if $1 is spent on them, they actually contribute $3 to the economy. We're not looking at them from that perspective. You know, uh, person, people who come here and, uh, you know, I really do think that people should be listening to my podcast series that is going to air actually from today. It's a new series that will uh, launch today and we'll have weekly episodes. But these uh, interviews are with people who have been looking at the economy and looking at immigration and really talking about why immigrants are not taking jobs that, you know, a lot of people perpetuate in their rhetoric, but they're creating jobs. The majority of immigrants create their own jobs. When they are fleeing for their lives from one place to another, they know they've got to fend for themselves. And so uh, there's a, there are many reports, many statistics on what happens when immigrants come to this country and actually contribute to uh, the economy. One of the interviewers um, coming up on the show, she talks about refugees in the Middle East and immigrants who become entrepreneurs because they've got to find solutions to their problems. But what she says so eloquently is that these immigrants are consumers of that, you know, wherever they go. They are consumers and service providers and, um, you know, you name it. They're, they're part and part of, parcel of that economy no matter where they go. And so, you know, what needs to happen is the narrative needs to change. We need to tell people, look, you know, first of all, whoever you are, you are either an immigrant or a descendant of an immigrant if you are American. We have forgotten that um, issue. This country is built on on immigrants. Like that's that's what the America was. You know, will take your poor, your weak, your stranded. Like it's it's in our constitution. It's on the Statue of Liberty. Like we are the we are supposed to be the country that says come here and start a new, better life. And we have kind of reversed that, where it's been like if you're not born here, then you're not worth it. And, you know, I jokingly tell people that are against immigration, I'm like, cool, well, get rid of your dentist, get rid of your doctor, <laughs> get rid of these people in the community that, you know, because oftentimes you get this, uh, these, this bad taste in your mouth of these horrible negatives of like, well, who's going to mow your yard if, and, okay, fuck off, like get rid of your dentist. When's the last time you saw a white guy to fix your teeth? It's been over 15 years for me, homie. <laughs> you, know what ah. I mean? like you have people that are coming from different countries who are, who are immigrants or who are different backgrounds. The diversity in America is what gives us strength. And you have a lot of people that are in your community that are college professors, that are doctors, that are dentists, that are entrepreneurs, that have opened up their own business in your neighborhood who provide you with services that weren't there before that you are forgetting or not wanting to count or writing off as well they must be american because they're they're doing well in this country that's not always the case some people come here and start with nothing and build it up the majority of people come here with nothing and build it up i can't tell you how many times you know you know you'll you'll meet somebody who is uh, again, like you'll, you'll take a dentist and they're, well, my father's a dentist and his father was a dentist and he came from Kosovo and he, you know, we lived here over nothing. We started with $10 in, in our pocket and then we opened up a shop and then my dad's had this, this dentistry for 20 years. And then I got into it. You know, you have these passed down generations with that started with an immigrant family. 
um, you know, in the 60s or 70s or whenever it was um, that have now built up uh, a service in your community that you take for granted. And these people, these people give so much strength and add so much value and diversity into the the culture that I think, again, gets written off in bad taste jokes or in this terrible n- narrative of just like, well, if we build a wall, nobody's going to mow my yard. You're like, come on, guy, get fucked. <laughs> you know, like these are humans we're talking about. These are people that are adding more than that. These are people that you're not thinking about outside of this, this, this realm. You're, you're so right. And I couldn't have said it any better. You know, it's, uh, there are statistics on that very issue and it's called a multiplier effect. So what happens is, let's say there's an H-1B worker that comes here. For that one H-1B worker, there are three to five professional service providers that get created, the dentist, the CPA, the doctor. And then you do need the non-professional service, the laundry person, the gardener. So there are many statistics actually confirming everything that you just said. Well, good, because uh, <laughs> I haven't read any of those. I've just gotten angry in conversations and have put it together. Well, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're right on the right path. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, I, I want to cover two things. I want to go back to this, this, uh, the, the Muslim ban and, and stuff and the difference between, you know, the legality of that and how he was able to implement that. And if some of that is still in place, and then I'd like to move on and just cover a couple things with the current administration with Biden and what he's proposing or what he did propose in January as his plan moving forward for immigration. Sure. So let's talk about the Muslim ban. And yeah. so I, I earlier talked about the two executive orders, Interior Enforcement and Border Security. Those were issued on a Wednesday. Friday, 5 p.m., a new executive order gets signed, and it's um, it's the Muslim ban. Now, when that happened, we all forgot about the, not forgot, we were distracted from the first two executive orders because we had to figure out what to do now. It was very much what you said earlier. What do I do? What can I do? We all felt that in a visceral way, no matter where you were, you can remember that day like it was yesterday. And wherever you were, you were probably, you were at an airport inadvertently seeing it right in action. And what you may or may not have noticed, that moment, people who are boarding planes in America or different countries, um, people who are airborne already coming into America and people who are on the planes on the tarmac, they were banned. Um, and so yeah, they checked they, my status and I mean, obviously everybody else in line, but we were in line to board the plane and we they had to pause things. We got delayed and then they they started a, a new thing where they were going around and checking everybody's individual ID or passport and running them through the system. No way board that plane and that that night, the day it happened, the night it happened. Wow. I just got goosebumps because, you know, I. I think you have to come on my podcast soon and just describe <laughs> that moment to my listeners because I think th- that is one of the most important moments in American history. 
because we cannot forget history because that helps us, you know, build the future that we want to see. But what happened with that order, just to give a snapshot, uh, and Washington State, where I live, you know, we had the first litigation on the issue and our Attorney General, Bob Ferguson, fought a brand new president on his own. Nobody else wanted to join him in that fight. And again, I bring up this book, Legal Heroes. He's one of the heroes mentioned in the book and he's on the podcast. But the Supreme Court essentially didn't allow, the, the, sec, the first one, you, you, you know, was point blank illegal. It wasn't drafted properly. It was haphazardly drafted. The second one, same thing. But the third one was allowed to survive by the Supreme Court of the United States because they said they are looking at the four corners of the black and white paper. They were not looking beyond uh, the rhetoric that you know gave rise to that. And that's why it was allowed to survive. And by the time the third iteration came along, they added Venezuela and North, uh, North Korea just so that they could say it's not a Muslim ban. Yeah, it was just fluff. Yeah, it was just like, oh, yeah, yeah. and uh, this too. It's like when you go to the store for really what you want is chocolate. And you're like, yeah, I also got to pick up some batteries. <laughs> and you're like, that's yeah, exactly you want to tell me you're going to the store for fucking chocolate. <laughs> yeah, people from those countries couldn't come for in the, the entire four years. So President Biden had to basically say I'm reversing the Muslim banning. That was the Muslim ban. President Biden took it away. He basically reversed that order. But in the meantime, you might remember chain migration became part of everyday vocabulary. He couldn't get that because you needed Congress to do it. But COVID gave him what Congress couldn't. He used COVID to ban parents and other family members from getting green cards, even though COVID shut down the embassies. And so all of those bans, uh, not all of them, but some of them were taken away by President Biden. But in the meantime, COVID challenges that we talked about earlier now brought in these other bans where is it the extra variant or something else that's going on with the virus that has now brought these other bans. So now we're primarily dealing with the COVID bans as opposed to the bans that Trump had put in place for the most part. And, and but, legally speaking, he I mean, Trump got away with those executive orders because he was he claimed that they were terrorist countries, right, that they were a threat. And that's how he was able to get away with it. Or was there another way that 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 was primarily it? But look what happened on January 6th. Yeah. You know, I mean, the history is not going to be forgiving of what has happened in recent history. And I think our children will be saying to us, you know, why couldn't you stop it? And I think this is very much what probably happened, you know, in Europe all those years ago, where we were essentially, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't do much. And so what we can do is try to fix our future, make it better for everybody. And so President Biden is uh, in position, he is showing good leadership. We are now one of the countries that has the most COVID shots, which is a feat in and of itself. Uh, but there are so many challenges. Uh, immigration is just one of them. And so one of the things that I try to tell my clients and everybody else is a leader can lead, but we also have to help. And so we cannot just sit back and say, well, we have a new government. It's not just about the government. We are a team, whether you're in a small family with a family of four, you're a team, or if you're a country, we're a team. And so that's how I feel about most things that it's up to us to try to make the world a better place. And, uh, you know, all every day I wake up and I'm like, what else can I do 
uh, to see the change uh, and be the change that I want to see. Uh, and, you know, I think all of us have that within us. We just have to do something. And what I have found with um, doing something good, it's almost addictive. You do something good and you see the result and you want to do more and you want to do more. And I think your listeners will find that's true if they take the first step, however small, however scary, just take it and then see where it takes you. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. And I've been saying that for a few years now. I, I, I heard um, Hillary Clinton speak about that, which she kind of piggybacked on, on Obama's uh, lines a few years ago. But um, when the Dallas shooting happened, and I'm sure my listeners have heard me talk about this, but when the Dallas shooting happened um, right before the campaigns in 2016, um, he had said, the sheriff came on, and he was talking about, and he said, be the change that you want to see in your community, sign up for the police force sign up for this, I volunteer for that. And Hillary Clinton echoed his thoughts and said the same thing on a national level during her campaign speeches. She was like, sign up for the police force in your neighborhood. If, if you want to, if you want to see real change in police reform and all that stuff, become a police officer, get in the system, change it from the inside. And that, and you're talking about that on, on any level on, on any institution is, be the change that you want to see. You have no idea how powerful your voice is, um, how, how that energy will change, how, how, you know, again, change it from the inside. You have to do something other than just yelling at your phone <laughs> while you're yeah. scrolling Twitter. <laughs> you're like, yeah. Why doesn't somebody do something? Well, <laughs> then do it. it. They do it. And, and again, I come back to the Legal Heroes book because each person in the book, was not necessarily somebody that you think that will go out and fight for the rule of law. They were just doing the day job as being a lawyer. But exactly what you said, they said, I couldn't donate money anymore. I couldn't yell at the phone anymore. I had to do something. And I think this book will inspire people to say, well, yeah, I can do something too. And uh, <clears throat> I, I think we all have it in us. Uh, and I, I couldn't say it better than you. So I hope your listeners will really <laughs> listen and do something about it. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I loved having you on today. I could talk to you for hours. Um, please tell everybody where they can get your book and listen to your podcast. Thank you so much. Um, thank you again for having me. This was such a of fun course. conversation. And you made a really um, difficult conversation really fun. So I'm, I'm grateful, <laughs> good, very grateful. Good. So my books, I have written two books. One is called The Startup Visa. It was written in 2015, but the, the second edition actually is coming out next month. And so to celebrate the, the book and just continue to talk about the reasons for the book, uh, I, you know, it, it inspired a new podcast series on my podcast that's going to be released today. Uh, so the first episode should come out today and it will be really inspiring for people. So Tamina Talks Immigration is the podcast. You can get it on iTunes and everywhere else. And my books can be found on Amazon. Um, or, you know, any any uh, online bookstore, uh, Barnes and Nobles. But I, what I will say is I've started doing audiobooks too. So my Legal Heroes book was narrated by me in this room, which didn't look like this at the time. Uh, <laughs> and then I'm currently recording the Startup Visa book so that it can be released at the same time. Uh, but I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and all the social media pages. But I have a very active blog 
watsonimmigrationlaw.com slash blog, where we talk about what's happening and reflects, um, uh, affects our clients. But I also have that biweekly column on Above the Law, which I hope people will follow. Perfect. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Home Alone and special thanks to my guest, Tamina Watson. If you want to learn more about her, you can pick up her book, Legal Heroes in the Trump Era, or you can check out her podcast, Tamina Talks Immigration on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And you can keep up with me on Instagram, Twitter, at Malone Comedy. That's at Malone Comedy. And I'm excited to say that last week uh, marked my one-year anniversary of my book, Dead Serious. And I'm doing a, a special promotion uh, for Pride Month and my birthday month for my book. Uh, so if you want to get a signed copy, you can go to MaloneComedy.com and I'll sign a copy. You get bookmarks, you get stickers, you get a free digital download if you have a Kindle or an iPad. Uh, so you get all that stuff and all the proceeds are going to go towards the Trevor Project. And also, I'm going back on tour this fall, and you can check out those dates at MaloneComedy.com to see when I'm coming to a town near you. Thanks for listening.